I want to start by dealing with uh, kind of an internal issue and then broaden it way out to uh, something much larger. So last Sunday, uh, for those who were here, and if you weren't here, I'll just catch up to speed. HL spoke on shame last week. It was such a good message because uh, I think so many people deal with shame in one form or another. Um, for me, I, and, and maybe this will relate to some of you, when I think about shame, a lot of times when I hear people talk about shame, I hear them talk about it from the perspective of things you've done, uh, sins, uh, harmful actions, whatnot, and shame for that. For me, most of my life, I have really battled shame, not necessarily for specific things I've done, but just for who I am, just from my core, just shame. Um, I have assumed that people just don't like me. I've assumed that I'm an inconvenience to them. I've assumed that uh, I'm an annoyance to them. Um, I've, I've frequently seen myself as a big old capital L loser, as, um, as not enough, as invisible, as not um, cute enough or special enough or fun enough, uh, just not enough, uh, that who I am has just not been enough. Um, that if, if somebody does act like they like me, well, it, it's either because they're just kind of pretending and they feel sorry for me or because they don't really know me. Because if they really knew me, they wouldn't like me. Uh, and so that's been kind of my, my default for a, a good chunk of my life. But because that default has been that, um, I often get um, paralyzed by, by challenges and by opportunities. You know, there's some opportunity for me to take a risk or to step out and do something new, to challenge myself. And I just get paralyzed by that. I think for just a moment, okay, maybe, maybe I can do that. Maybe this time I can step up to the challenge and I can, I can do this thing and succeed. Maybe this time I can, I can reach that business incentive. Maybe this time. But then all of a sudden, the border guard shows up. Now, I, I don't know about you. You can tell me, you can kind of wave at me if this relates to you. But in my mind, there is a border patrol. There are guard towers on the edges. And these are folks uh, whose job it is to keep me stuck inside my own head, to keep me from taking a risk and stepping out. And so at the very first time, hint of my stepping out and doing something new or adventurous or risky in any way, suddenly something almost physically rises up within me and the border patrol starts screaming at me, no, no, you cannot do that. Sit down. Who do you think you are? Special people get to do the special things, but you, you are not the special person. You do not get to do the special things. Know your place. Get back in line. Sit down. You are nobody. And I, that, it just rises up and it's such a powerful thing. And I go, oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. I, I am, I'm nobody. That's, okay, I, I'm just kidding. I'm not actually going to do that thing. Um, and so truly on the inside, I am a three-year-old having a total tantrum. No, 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 I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And I just freeze. It's self-preservation in total and complete overdrive. But here's where I've been finding freedom. When I can identify what's happening and I realize, oh, this is the border patrol. This is nothing out there saying this. This is in my head. They're just saying what they've been trained to say over years and over decades. And they're all bark and no bite. And if I look real closely, I see 
They don't even have guns. They have no weapons. They're just yelling at me what they've learned to say. And so if they're really just, as I look further, I see they're not even fierce and angry, they're scared. It's a bunch of scared little Beckys inside my head going, no, no, no. And they're in the corner and they're so terrified that they're just punching out and yelling out threats because they're so scared. So what if instead of listening to that and either backing away or trying to beat down the border guard, which ultimately is me, I'm my own border guard. What if instead I just love on that scared little Becky inside my head and I just say, bless you child, you, you've been through it. Somebody's been lying to you. Let's talk about truth. And what if I comfort the scared little Becky and the scarred little Becky the same way I would comfort my own child? And I just wrap my arm around her and I say, we're gonna walk through this, it's gonna be okay. And I have been finding great freedom by just not fighting myself, but kind of just putting that arm around and saying, we're gonna do it. Here's why this matters um, outside of just me. And here's why I, th I think we start zooming out a little bit. This matters because God designed me and, and he made me and he loves me and he wants me to see myself the way he sees me because that's the truth. That's capital T truth. That's the true perspective is his perspective. And he thinks I'm okay. And so it turns out, haha, more freedom here. I feel the best about me when I'm the most connected to him. When I take time throughout my day to say, okay, God, you're here, I'm here. What do you want to talk about right now? Or, hey, God, I'm here. What, what, what should we do? Where are we going? When I take time each day to, to open up the Bible and read some of those words to me from him, I feel so much better about myself. It really makes a difference. Um, and, and the Border Patrol slowly but surely stops yelling quite so loudly. But here's the part where we zoom out even more. This life is short and we only get to live it one time. And uh, as we go around, it turns out God says there's stuff that he wants us to be doing during this life. Stuff about being with him and stuff about loving other people, loving our neighbor as ourself. That's stuff that, that, that he designed us to do. And so as, as people, and, and, and I'm going to kind of talk as though most of us are at least sort of on a path toward Jesus in some way. Um, but if, if God designed us for that, he wants us to be doing that, then I've got to think about things like uh, Proverbs 31, where it says, speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, defend the rights of the poor and needy. There are needy people all around us. There are oppressed people in this country and around the world. And part of that whole loving the other people he made included being mindful of people even outside of my own circle and even outside of my own church. Uh, in the book of James, uh, the, the James in the Bible writes that pure and faultless religion in the sight of God is this, looking after orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself unpolluted from the world. 
Well, that whole looking after the orphans and the widows, looking after those who are in distress, when I'm cowering in the corner, when I'm hanging my head in shame, I'm not doing the stuff because I'm so focused on my own hurt. And so my compassion toward others tends to get a little messed up. And instead of real compassion for other people, I get so sort of in my own head that it comes out as, as pity and not actual compassion with action attached to it. Um, if I am just not in a good space in here and I'm always listening to those voices of doubt, when it comes to compassion and action, reaching out and doing something, I end up cowering in the corner instead of stepping out in boldness to do some of the things to love other people the way God designed me to do. I'm working at that point to help others so that I can be good enough instead of working to help others because they belong to God and I belong to God and we're all in this mess together. And if my perspective is that, hey, we're all in this space together, then my compassion is really based on love um, and not based on my, my own fears and, and my own um, um, paralysis. Because it's not about me, it's about him and it's about us. Because compassion isn't just a feeling, it's, it's an action. It's choosing to look beyond our, ourselves and seeing that there's need and there's hurt out there and then being thoughtful and intentional on reaching out to those needs and trying to help meet those needs. But if I am so consumed by my own shame, then I end up too much in my own head for compassion to really work. So I want to zoom way out further. Actually, I want to zip backward uh, to the book of Genesis and go back to the very, very, very beginning. Being made in God's image, we are inherently relational. And, uh, and I've read from a few different sources the idea that in the garden, with Adam and Eve in, in the garden, uh, that there were four foundational relationships that were set up there. There was our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with other people, and our relationship with creation, with the resources around us. And so with that, uh, everything there was designed to be in, in beautiful relationship, in healthy relationship. We're all together in this. But um, with, the, with the fall, with the idea that, that you know, Eve ate of the fruit she wasn't supposed to eat of, and then Adam did too, and then there was a disconnect. And from that point, immediately the relationship with God was broken. And in place of that close relationship with God, Adam and Eve felt fear. And then suddenly Adam and Eve felt shame. So the relationship within themselves was broken. Then the relationship with other was broken. Um, Adam blamed Eve and, and within a generation we got one brother murdering another brother. So our relationships externally were broken. And relationship with creation and with the ground, with, with, with the resources was broken. And so at that point, everything's just been messy ever since then. Because those relationships are building blocks for everything else, then our systems get broken. And so when we, when we think about some of the brokenness in our world, you know, there, there are all kinds of issues. Now, I'm going to focus specifically on poverty for a few minutes. Um, but now at this point, we've got poverty that goes from generation to generation. We've got one billion people in the world right now living on less than a dollar a day. We've got uh, people trapped in, in slavery. There are about 27 million people in the world right now as we're sitting here who are in some form of slavery. The systems of our world are pretty messed up. 
There are broken uh, relationships all over the place, and it's bringing around um, systemic abuse and, and oppression. And I believe we're compelled by the Bible to do something to help restore those relationships in one direction and another. Paul wrote that we have the ministry of reconciliation. And I believe, yes, that's reconciliation to Christ, to God. But there is also, because they're all connected, that ends up connecting us to reconciliation to all of those relationships. So for me, I believe God put in front of me about five years ago um, an opportunity to use business to help end poverty. But, you know, going into business is kind of scary, and the Border Patrol has been hard at me the past five years, uh, going into business and trying to make a difference in the world. And who do you think you are trying to make a difference and trying to do something? You can't do that. Um, but, oh, and then my business partners <laughs> happen to be some of the very poorest people in the world. And that's a little risky. And then uh, I help market their products, which means I'm kind of in sales, and that's a little scary. So all in all, I'm, I'm faced again and again with, I don't know, can I really do this? Can you really do this? And I'm putting myself out day by day just saying, please, reject me, reject me. Um, but the truth of God's word about the poor and the oppressed and the relationships brings me confidence that God tells us we can do something. I want true compassion toward people. I want these folks to have freedom and to walk in dignity and to walk in, in self-respect. They have an inherent dignity and value and worth, and I want them walking in that and knowing that. Um, I want them to have healthy relationships with God and with themselves and with other people and with the resources around them. And so that really works best when I remember that we all come from places of brokenness. When I look at the material poor, they've got brokenness in one area and maybe brokenness in multiple areas, but who here doesn't have some brokenness in terms of some relationship with yourself, with God, with other people, uh, with resources? In the book, Walking with the Poor, um, well, actually, first let me say, uh, there was some research several years back when uh, someone asked people in poverty around the world about poverty. And about 10% of their answers had to do with, 10% of what they said had to do with um, lack of resources, which is what we tend to think of when we think of poverty. But about 90% of what they said related to feelings of shame, hopelessness, helplessness, powerlessness, a sense of inferiority. The vast majority of what they said had nothing to do with not having stuff but with the feelings and the relationships that come from that. So Bryant Myers uh, wrote, poverty is the result of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all its meanings. And I know HL has talked about the word shalom several times in here, the idea that it, it relates to, to peace, but, but there's a wholeness that goes with that. Poverty is the primary reason that human trafficking and labor slavery and sex slavery exist. This is the primary component. People end up in these terrible and desperate situations. And so if we truly want to have compassion and live a life of compassion for ourselves and our family and our community and our workplace and the rest of the world, I feel like we need two things. Number one, we need to realize we all come from places of brokenness. But number two, we need to realize that there is great hope and that there is the power of, of you 
and me and us to make a difference, that we can make a difference for people here and we can make a difference across the globe. Because when people have the resources that they need, and I'm not even just talking about money, I'm talking about jobs and the ability to be self-sustaining, there is a beautiful thing that happens. So as followers of Jesus who are trying to follow the way of Jesus, we have a responsibility to show compassion. And I believe all Christians have a responsibility to help the poor. But what that looks like for me versus what that looks like for you versus what that looks like for him and her and them is probably going to look very different. But I want to look at a few ideas here um, of kind of how, how we live and maybe what we can do. Because I believe within the American church there should be a strong sense of urgency to, um, as Isaiah says, well, that's a lot of words. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, spend ourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Uh, so I'm going to look at Isaiah 58. And uh, let's see, I'm going to start with verse 3, sort of, and a half. Um, the people are, are crying out to God, and, and they say, you know, we fasted, and you're not paying attention to us, God. Like, we're, we're trying to deny ourselves, and you're not really paying attention. And he says, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. And he goes on, he says, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with, wick, with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. He goes on, he says, is this not the kind of fast I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk. Now that's a whole nother sermon, pointing finger and malicious talk. I don't know if you notice we do that a lot in America these days. Uh, if you do away with all that and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the midday. Woo! So if we are compassionate toward others in a real and practical way, somehow there's a greater connection there. First uh, John, which is a great book about love, First John in the Bible, in chapter 3, uh, he says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? But if Christ is Lord of all of our life, this is me, not John, um, how, how do we then handle our money and our time and all of our resources to the glory of God? I'm going to go through uh, kind of a scary little parable from Jesus. I, frankly, of all the New Testament, this parable right here is, is to me, I think, the scariest words that Jesus says. Um, it's about compassion and kind of our job description as believers. He says, when the Son of Man, uh, that's Jesus, comes in his glory at some point in the future, and all the angels are with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, opposite for you. Then the king will say to those on his right, 
Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when, when did we do these things? We, we don't remember doing these things. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you did not give me drink. Uh, I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will say, whoa, whoa, Lord, when did we not do these things? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Y'all, that kind of scares me a little bit. Because then it, it comes down to, it sounds like it's a really big deal. Did we help the poor? Did we provide for those who were in need? Did we help the oppressed? Or didn't we? And so I want to, not out of great fear, but out of love and compassion, I want to be looking around and I want to see what are the needs? What can I do? So, if the task of us as, as followers of Jesus is to embody Jesus Christ by doing what he did, saying what he said, and declaring in word and in deed that, that he is the king and he is the Lord and he wants to establish a kingdom of justice and mercy and love, then perhaps then we as those people have some obligation to say, okay, God, how do we fit into that? How do we do that? And can we do that among the lame and the blind and the poor and the oppressed? We know we have a mandate to care for the widow and the orphan and the poor and the oppressed. But then it goes beyond just kind of our, our, our Louisville community here because we live in a global society and our daily lives touch people we will never meet this side of heaven. There are people across the globe who made the things that we're wearing and the things that we're carrying and the devices that we're using. What about them? Can we impact them? Sometimes in trying to help people, it's about giving money. But a lot of times it's about partnering with people and linking arms with people and saying, I see you. I know that you need more than just money. What do you need? And let's make that happen. Because our kind of mid-American lifestyle is, is unfortunately, and, and, and here's the hard thing, here's kind of the yucky part, is built on the backs of oppression, the oppression of people across the globe. If you, if you, if you check the tag in your shirt, uh, you check, I don't know, somewhere on your shoes, you see where were these things made, the vast majority of them are made in countries that thrive on, I mean, their, their economy is based on the oppression of people. Um, uh, most of our clothes are made by, by women and children who are in dangerous situations who are being paid at best pennies a day, a dollar a day. Uh, our, our, the people harvesting our cotton uh, very frequently are forced laborers. Um, so everywhere we look, there are, there are people being, being affected 
by the choices that we are making. Um, the coffee that we drink, the, the chocolate that we enjoy, somebody's hands were a part of that. And I want us to think about uh, what, what that means. Because sometimes that means maybe buying this shirt instead of that shirt. Sometimes maybe that means looking at labels and seeing where were things made and considering whose hands touched them. Were those people paid? Are those people being abused? And is it possible for me to make a different choice? You know, who picked your coffee beans? Were they paid? Um, there's a decent chance they weren't paid reasonably. And how about that chocolate that you enjoy? Who picked those cocoa beans? Chances are very good it was um, a, a young adult or even a child in Africa um, who was transported across country lines to, to have the job of harvesting cocoa beans and never themselves getting to taste chocolate. Um, so who made these things? Someone did. And they're real people just like you and just like me and just like your kids and just like my kids. And there's a chance that, that, that we can make a change, make little changes here and there and do more to help people. Um, now, th the fact is that's kind of overwhelming because it, it, it feels like if we look around, you know, everybody is, is uh, using sweatshop labor and everybody is, and how can we possibly know? How can we possibly know? Do you know how many articles of clothing you have on right now? And then you've got a device and then you've got your purse or, or your wallet and then you've got, how can we possibly know about all those things? And I am not at all suggesting today that we just flip a switch and change everything. But I, but I want to start the dialogue of saying, can we begin looking at those things? Can we pick one thing and say, you know what, maybe I'm going to dig a little deeper and find out where that stuff comes from? Um, because the fact is that there are chocolate and coffee and clothes and jewelry and all these things that are not oppressing the poor, that are giving people dignified jobs with real wages where they can actually live and survive and thrive. And that does exist. Um, I work with a company that the, the mission is to empower women out of poverty through job creation, through sustainable business. Um, and, and there are lots of companies like that that are saying, you know what, we do care about people. We do care about the people in the supply chain. And we're going to look and we're going to make sure that, that they're not being abused and oppressed. And so if our lives are indeed surrendered to, to, to God in the sense that we say, okay, Jesus, what do you want? What, what, what do you want, God? Because that's the direction I want to move. Um, then maybe that includes our choices as consumers and the stuff that we buy day to day. Um, for example, a lot of cotton comes from Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan, anybody been there? No, okay, uh, <laughs> me neither. But a lot of our cotton comes from Uzbekistan and a lot of their labor is forced labor. And so then there's been some pressure on a variety of companies to not source cotton from Uzbekistan, to buy it from somewhere where they're not using forced labor. And some companies have begun saying, okay, we won't use Uzbek cotton anymore. And so step by step and little by little, there are changes being made. Uh, quick timeout, I gotta skip a couple things here. So, so, so what do we do? Well, we, we start learning a little bit, and when we know better, we do better. Um, in Deuteronomy, it says, don't take advantage of a hired worker uh, who is poor and needy. Pay them their wages each day before sunset, because they're poor and they're counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. And I think there are lots of companies and corporations out there who aren't paying attention 
maybe the way that they could or maybe the way that they need to. And so we want to make sure, um, well, I, I, guess, I guess two major points here. Number one, you matter. And the choices that you make matter. You know, I can get all kind of inside my own head and be like, ah, you know, I don't count, I don't matter, I don't matter. Yeah, yeah, I kind of do. Because I have the power and the ability to affect change for other people. The decisions you make day to day, whether it's smiling and saying hi to somebody um, or, or whether it's looking at what you buy, it matters. You matter. But also, the people across the globe that we've never met and never will meet, they matter too. So, my encouragement is check the tags. Look at where were my things made. Think about who was involved. Were there farmers and harvesters and, and, and processors and sowers? It can feel kind of insurmountable, but um, then I think the question comes back to what am I willing to support? I want to say perspective-wise, too, I think sometimes we, we mentally we can kind of treat it like it's not a big deal, number one, because it's so overwhelming that it's like am I, I'm just a drop in the bucket, but also because it's not in our backyard. And I've said many times, Paul's heard me say many times, I think if the, if the person being oppressed, abused, beaten, mistreated to make my, you name the product, were right there standing next to me in the aisle as I shopped, I think I'd probably make some different decisions. But it's out of sight, out of mind, and it's so easy just not to think about where did the chocolate come from, where did the coffee come from, where did the clothing come from, um, because they're, they're not right there. Sometimes I think we just have to ask what, what matters more, um, my day-to-day my -day little shopping or, or the lives of people around the world. But sometimes it's complicated and sometimes it's intertwined. And I'm not saying all this to say it's easy and we can just flip a switch and, and, and somehow change all of our buying habits. But the fact is that as much as we get kind of really rah, rah, rah about issues in our country, and we should, that if we're standing up going rah, rah, rah about women's issues in our country or oppression of people within our own country or, or, or racism in our country, we should be fired up about those things. Yes, please, do take a stand. But if as we're doing that, we're wearing a shirt or wearing shoes that were made by a, a child, basically in slavery, were made by a woman who's being oppressed by her employer, maybe it's time to broaden our thinking a bit as well. Um, so Colossians 3 talks about clothing ourselves in compassion. Um, so, haha, little light moment, right? Clothe ourselves in compassion. So maybe thinking about what we're wearing. I know, I know, I'm sorry. I had to lighten it up a little bit here. Um, so so here's, where, here's where I want to um, kind of draw. I keep wanting to go to the next slide. There's no more slides. Okay, so here's where I want to kind of wrap things up. Four points, um, four suggestions for, for what we do here. Number one, Maybe make a decision today if you're willing to say, you know what, maybe I can do something. Number one, say, you know what, I'm going to start learning about, about some stuff. Maybe I'm going to take a look at the tag at my shirt. When I get home, I'm going to take a look at the tag on my shirt, see where it was made. Or maybe I'm going to think about the store where I bought that shirt. And I'm going to be willing to learn and I'm going to be willing to Google the name of that store plus the word uh, uh, oppression or um, fair trade or ethical and I'm going to see what pops up because chances are good if the store you bought that from has some real problems if you google that store and then ethical or that store and then fair trade it, it's going to pop up 
one way or the other, good or bad. Um, so being willing to keep learning. Number two, being willing then to let that change at least the occasional shopping decision. Number three, pick an area and, 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 and just go for it. And maybe it's chocolate or maybe it's coffee or maybe it's your shoes or maybe it's your shirts or maybe it's your pants, but pick an area and say, you know what, I'm, I'm willing to look this up, I'm willing to check into this, and I'm willing to start to shift my thinking and maybe my shopping in that direction. I'm gonna try and find folks who are not abusing and oppressing the people. And then number four, uh, especially when it comes to clothing, consider shopping secondhand. Now that's not helping employ people uh, you know, overseas who are in fair trade or, or non-oppressive environments, it's true, but it is extending the life of other things and it is helping uh, local consignment and thrift stores which are there for a good purpose to help those in the community as well. And so considering maybe um, buying some clothes secondhand, and I know I can get a, a, an amen from at least my husband and, and HL because we're all big fans of thrift stores and consignment shops. Um, <laughs> So let's bring, um, oh no, I am missing a slide. That's okay. Let's bring this conversation um, back to Jesus then. And, uh, and actually I'm going to quote uh, a, a fellow, and I didn't write down his name, so I'm going to mess up the quote, or I'm just not going to tell you who it's from because I don't remember. I think his name is Josh Porter, but he says, let's bring this conversation to Jesus, who should have veto power over all of our shopping decisions, whatever they might be, and let's continue to seek the way of Jesus and ask him to lead us to a place of wisdom in our purchases that both honors him and our brothers and sisters behind the curtain of the purchases we make. You and I, it turns out, are the special people who can do the very special thing of looking around, seeing the hurt, and saying, I will try to help. I will try to do something that changes things. Um, and then I want to close with for the song we sang, the last song we sang today, one of my very favorites. Um, and so I think this line is a good place to leave us. Show me who you are, God, and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me.